Have you been caught in upgrade fever? Maybe you feel your phone is due for an upgrade, even though it's still working fine. Or is it your car, your kitchen, your couch, your bathroom? We're going to meet a family today who decided a number of years ago that what they needed was to downgrade. So they left their upper middle class life in Australia and headed for their new home in the slums of India. This is their story. This is Signs of the Times Radio with Kent Kingston. Well, this is not something we've done before on Signs of the Times Radio, but we have joining us uh, via Zoom on the internet from Lucknow in India, Mark Delaney and Oscar Delaney, his son. Thanks so much, guys, for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Ken. Nice to be here. Yeah, thanks. Great to be on the show. So, yeah, I mean, look, we, we have spoken to people interstate and, and things like that, and uh, pro- probably in, yeah, actually overseas too from the US, but never from India before. So, so mm-hmm. just, just paint a, a picture for us, because uh, it, it is luck now you're living in, isn't it, in, in uh, Uttar Pradesh state? That's right, yeah. So we live in this city called Lucknow, and by Indian terms, it's a fairly small city. It's only about 3 million people. Mm-hmm. But it's a, so it's a significant city. It's the capital of a state called Uttar Pradesh. And amazingly, Uttar Pradesh is just one state, but it's home to 200 million people. Wow. So I know for Australians, those numbers are just absolutely mind-boggling. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we, we live uh, in Lucknow. And we live in a fairly poor neighbourhood, mm-hmm. a, a place that many Australians, I guess, would call a slum. Mm-hmm. So it's a fairly informal neighbourhood. It's probably built on government land, so the, the houses are very small and fairly crudely constructed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we live in a, a place similar to our neighbours, which is just largely one room, and that's, uh, that's our whole house. You know, it's our living room, it's our study room, it's our bedroom, it's uh, everything. You know, you just convert it. <laughs> you know, at night you get the mattresses out and it's your bedroom and in daytime you put them away and it's your dining room and so forth. So okay. we live in one room. We don't, uh, we live very, choose to live very simply. So we don't have a fridge. We don't have a washing machine. We don't have running water. So mm. we have to carry our water from downstairs. So, yeah, they're very deliberate decisions that we, we make to live very simply to try to understand what the lives of the poor of our poor neighbours are like. Wow, look, I, I totally want to get into understanding that, but I guess I just want a, a little bit of a, a clearer picture first. So, so Oscar, the, the, the house that you're in there, are we, are we talking like concrete and, and brick construction with a tin roof or, or what? Yeah, yeah, so it's mainly bricks with concrete in the middle, but uh, the roof is actually fairly solid. So mm-hmm. it's not uh, far from the poorest settlement you could have. So mm-hmm. our roof doesn't leak water. We can uh, climb up on top of it to sleep at night. So it's a flash roof like uh, almost all houses around here. Okay. So, yeah, mainly brick and concrete, but fairly sturdy. All right, all right. So um, you've obviously you've got internet there somehow. Do, do, you, do you have like, like broadband to the house? Do you have electricity or you don't have running water? Yeah, sure. Well, I guess it's one of the ironies of modern life in India that sort of there's lots of great poverty, but then there's sort of quite good internet and good technology in other parts too. So we've just got a, like a little broad, broadband device that creates a hotspot that all our phones and computers can use. So yeah, that works quite well. 
Okay, well, well, there you go. Yeah, it is fascinating. They talk about you know the global village and and everything, and I guess we're really having a sense of, of that right now. That um, yeah, we, we can talk to you guys, you know, living in that sort of situation. So the, the, these <laughs> how these houses that are in this, um, and I, I sort of sense a little bit of discomfort about the word slum, but these are houses like built by the people themselves who who moved in, what sort of kick, kicked out of farmland or not from drought or, or debt or like, isn't that how it usually works? Yeah, yeah, I guess just as farming becomes harder when sort of bigger multinationals can do it better and more efficiently than more people move to the city and they can't really afford to buy a proper house, so they just move on to what was then the outskirts, but now is fairly central. Mm-hmm. And I guess they just start with a little bamboo and plastic shack maybe, and then after another few years, sort of build up another wall and maybe get a better roof and just slowly it grows. And now... Uh, most houses actually are probably two levels. So uh, if you own the first floor and can rent out the one above that, then if you're doing okay. Mm, okay. So, uh, Oscar, you've been like back to Australia a couple of times and, and seen how people live here and no doubt you've been to various places in India and seen how, you know, the different ways people live all over the country. Do you, how do you feel about, you know, going back to your, your little one-room place in, in Lucknow after seeing those other other possibilities? Is it a bit of a letdown, a bit of a disappointment, or is it, you know, coming home? Mm. Yeah, I guess a bit of both in the, like, sometimes when we go away for a holiday in the beautiful mountains in the Himalayas or wherever, it can be a bit tough coming back to the noise and the crowds and the heat of, uh, in Lucknow. Mm-hmm. So, you know, often the first few days can be a bit tricky. But uh, usually, like on the whole, I'm very happy to live here. And I think yeah, it just gives me a nice perspective on life. And I guess I can understand more of the privileges we do have. Mm-hmm. So when I am in Australia or am in a rich part of India, I guess I can appreciate those luxuries probably more than most people do. Yeah, sure. Fair, fair enough. So ha- how does it work like, in terms of your social life and, and school and, and things like that? Oh, wow. You, you're right close to the train line, eh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's only about 50 metres that way. So yep. they can be fairly loud. Yeah, so I'm studying through the Brisbane School of Distance Education. So that's mainly online. Mm-hmm. I'm in grade 12 at the moment. So that works fairly well for me, I guess. One issue is with the time difference, my classes are like 3.30 a.m. to 9.30 a.m. Oh, wow. So I've got exception from some of the early ones, but I still need to get up early a few days a week. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, and, and, and teenagers generally aren't too keen at getting up early in the morning, <laughs> let alone for no, a 3.30 no, class. A bit of a pain, but I, I manage. And I guess socially, probably more so than most Australian families, we spend a lot of time just together as the four of us. Yeah. So Great. We sort of talk a lot, display board games and card games and all that. There's there's several other foreign families in Lucknow too that we spend a bit of time with, mm-hmm. and also yeah, I guess several Indian families and people that we're getting to know more. Mm-hmm. But yeah, certainly that is an issue that there's fewer opportunities for relating with, I guess people who speak our first language or come mm-hmm. from our mm-hmm. culture. So okay. it can be a bit harder, but we're certainly making it work. Okay, so so I guess I mean you're you're a um like you you speak Hindi I assume and you've like grown up around a, a lot of um like local local kids has that um have you formed some good friendships there? Yeah, yeah. So I was mm, born in India and grew up sort of speaking Hindi from a pretty young age. Mm. So I said got lucky really in that I didn't need to put in the long hours of language learning like mum and dad did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess especially when I was a younger kid. 
most of my friends were Indian and we played lots of games together. That was great. I guess once I got a bit older, started wanting to sort of play more strategy games or card games or other things that they often hadn't played before or didn't know how to play, or we, I think, had a slight parting of ways and that my world just became a fair bit different to theirs as I sort of went to school and learnt new and different things and wasn't as interested in playing hide and seek or uh, tag or whatever. Mm. So that made it a bit harder because like, they can't play cards or Catan or Carcassonne or whatever else. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, I still do enjoy uh, talking and playing with other Indian kids here. So sometimes we play soccer in the park or cricket or whatever else. Yeah. yeah, that that works fairly well. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating because it sort of seems like even though you're born there and brought up there is still a, a little bit of caught between two two cultures in, in some ways. Now, now, Mark, I'd really love to go right back to the beginning of when you decided uh, you, you and and your wife decided that you would like to to move to India permanently. Now, you like had a law degree. You you had a I guess a stellar career, you know, possibilities ahead of you, but you you ended up in in India. How how did that happen? Well, it's a good question, Kent. Um, so my wife, Kathy, did uh, maths and computer science at Queensland Uni, and I did law and commerce at Queensland Uni. Mm. So, yeah, we were pretty well set up to pursue fairly normal, quite lucrative careers, I guess. But both of us had a bit of an epiphany, I guess, during our later teenage, early 20s, mm-hmm. where we kind of basically, because of our faith and because of you know, the, the scripture and, and some you know, inspirational friends of ours, we kind of thought, you know, life is is clearly not supposed to just be about ourselves. Yeah, Life is meant to be looking at those around us and those in need. And we saw from the scriptures very clearly that God had a, had a very special place in his heart for the poor. Mm. So... So, we, we so, so, Mark. So, why, why, why not? Why not then? You know, be, become a lawyer, become a successful lawyer, make a a matzo of cash, and be a, an extremely generous donor. I mean, there are in, incredible NGOs doing great work in all over the you know the world. Why, why not take that route? Why actually take the route you've taken? Sure, it's, it's funny you say that because that's exactly the response that my dad gave me when I suggested to him that I was going to not practice law anymore yeah. and, uh, in fact, go and live in a slum in India. You know, as you can imagine, a dad might be fairly disappointed in that. And so he was saying things like, you know, you could join the UN, you could uh, you know, go into politics, you could do all sorts of stuff to make a difference in this world. Yeah. And I said to him then, as I'd say to you now, you know, I think God needs people more than he needs money. You know, right. God doesn't need a checkbook. Uh, mm. if, if God's in something, he will provide the resources. He needs people mm. on the ground. Now, I say that with some degree of, you know, I need to moderate that to a degree. I think yeah. generally people in the developing world do the work in the developing world better than Westerners. And a lot of Westerners do a lot of harm or at least waste a lot of resources as they go to the developing world, you know, for a couple of weeks or six months saying, you know, I'm really going to do some great stuff. Generally speaking, it's it's our view that if you want to go to the developing world and work with, uh, with with God and others to bring change, you need to be around for a long period of time. Mm. You know, just like Jesus was around for thirty years, you know, learning the ropes of of how things work and what the issues were before he really got stuck in. Mm. So too, you know, we think you need to probably a minimum of five years to get some decent language. You know, learn the culture, learn the under, uh, understand what the issues are, what the problems are then you're reasonably well-placed to do something sensible about it. So Kathy and I came with that view. We said, look, you know, we're, 
let's go. Let's talk to uh, Indians to find out if they think there's a place for foreigners like us. And, and if so, we'll stick around for a number of years. Mm. Well, in the end, that's turned into 22 years. Yeah. So, well. um, yeah, that's, that would be our caution of, yes, God still needs people in the developing world, but don't pretend that you can go for three months or six months and make much of a difference. You probably can't. Mm, wow. So when, when you did consult with like local Indian people on the ground there, were they surprised at, at your idea to actually come and you know live uh, amongst the sort of most disadvantaged yeah. communities and try to you know work that <laughs> they, way? They, sure. They, they certainly were surprised because they were used to foreigners coming and living in fancy houses with air conditioning and cars and drivers and all of that. So they were certainly surprised. But I think they were a little bit, you know, happily surprised. Mm. And so these Indian Christian friends would say to us, look, if you're willing to stick around for a a long period of time, not months, but years, if you're willing to learn Hindi so that you can speak with ordinary Indians, not just, you know, know, the high class, middle class Indians, Mm. and if you're willing to work with us in our organisations with our ideas rather than come in and uh, impose your ideas, then you're very welcome to stay. So, in other words, they said, you know, you can come and join with us in partnership, but don't come in and uh, and think that you're the boss and you're the know-it-all. And we thought, well, that, that's incredibly reasonable. You know, we, we'd expect the same thing if someone came from India to work in Australia. Mm-hmm. So we thought that was very reasonable. And that's what we've tried to do, essentially, over all these years, is work with Indian organisations, uh, helping them do what they do even better. Mm, okay. So has it been effective in, in terms of poverty reduction? Like what 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 activities have you been involved with with with, with these other yeah. um, Indian co-workers and what sure, sure. yeah what what sort of um, yeah results have you seen? Yeah, what well, kind of things have we done? And that, that that's a reasonable question, of course. <laughs> it's all very well to talk theory, but at the end of the day, you know, have you made a difference? It's yeah, exactly. A very reasonable question. So, look, what we've done over the years is um, essentially tried to find out what the issues are in the various slums that we've lived in and work on those issues. So rather than come in and say, okay. We're experts on, you know, sanitation or literacy or whatever and, and, and do that. Mm. We, we listen to people a lot. So there's a lot of listening I and mean, a lot of learning. And therefore, the response in the various slums has varied on the, on the, the context. So in one slum that we lived in in Delhi, it turned out that uh, they got uh, an eviction notice from the Delhi government saying, we're going to demolish your slum in six days' time and relocate you to the outskirts of the city. Wow. Well, that was that, that slum had been there for 30 years and it was home to 7,000 people and it was uh, devastating news. It was in the middle of winter, it was freezing cold, the kids were about to do their yearly exams and so forth. It was terrible timing. So in that context, what we did was we helped with some Indian friends of ours run a series of community meetings. We then found out that people wanted to challenge this. They thought it was unreasonable. So we found some local lawyers. We challenged the eviction in the Delhi High Court. So because I'd studied law and uh, I spoke Hindi and I spoke English, I was kind of found myself in a, a mediator kind of position between mm. my Indian, four Indian friends and the middle class lawyers as we went to the Delhi High Court. So in the end, we had a, we had a, a victory there and the, the demolition was delayed. It was done very peacefully and non-violently in the end. There were no need for bulldozers. We managed to get a legal title for, for land for people in the new area. So that was one example of you know, we, we wouldn't have come to India saying, you know, we're going to act in for people in a slum demolition, mm. but that's mm. what was happening in that slum at that time. So that's what we did. In another slum that we lived in, um, unemployment was a big issue. 
So we help people to get jobs. We'd help them to write a CV and, you know, practice interview skills and so forth. In another, uh, actually the same place, there weren't many kids going to school. So we worked with the local schools to help more kids get enrolled in schools. So you get what I'm saying. It depends mm. on the context and what's going on around at the time. Okay, so it's so the work you're doing is basically, I guess, what could be described as as community development work, sort of consulting with people, seeing what the issues are. Um, it would involve a lot of community meetings, I imagine, a lot, a lot of sitting in circle with, you know, with people considered to be like elders or, or leaders in the community, and and then setting up me- meetings with various government people to advocate for for this or that or that sort of thing. That's right. That's, that's exactly yeah. right. Although the, the only thing I'd change in that in, is community meetings. You know, it's important to consult all members of the community, not just the leaders. And, and you know, India is a very patriarchal society. So if you call a, a meeting, you'll have a bunch of guys come. Yep. So you've got to work pretty hard to make sure that you hear the voice of women and of kids and of the, you know, people with disabilities and so forth. Mm. So, Lots of listening, lots of learning, and trying to work with people on their issues. Mm, okay, so uh, Oscar, have you been involved in in any of this work yourself? Like in terms of uh, what literacy programs or, or employment readiness programs, or um, you know, work skills sort of programs? Have you sort of got got your hands dirty there? Mm. Yeah, I guess uh, certainly not as much as these guys. Uh, probably more so just in the last year or two. Yeah. So my older brother, Tom, uh, he is quite involved with this literacy organisation here in Lucknow. So he, most afternoons, goes out for three or four hours and with another Indian man sort of tries to teach kids literacy in quite a, quite a different way to the government schools because the government schools usually don't really work. So I've been a bit involved with that this year and last year as Tom's gotten more and more busy, his sort of traveling interstate for his NGO or uh, needs to go to a government meeting. So I'm essentially his substitute teacher. Oh, okay. so I've sort of learned, learned the ropes of that system. I can do that fairly well. I'm friends with the other guy he does it with. So yeah, probably an average of once a week, maybe I'll go out for three or four hours in the afternoon to uh, yeah teach kids how to read Hindi. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So do, do you have any plans for like when you're finished year 12? Um, do you plan to stay there like with your parents um, in Lucknow or are you looking at studying elsewhere or what's, have you decided yet? Mm, yeah. So it's all pretty exciting. Uh, finishing school just in a few weeks, really. My exams are in about two weeks time. Yeah. So I've decided that I'll stay in India next year till about May, then go back to Australia to Brisbane to start uh, at the University of Queensland for a brief study science there. So, you know, I guess in the time up until I do leave, I'll be you know, looking to explore volunteering with a few more different organisations around here and see what I can learn and who I can work with. But yeah, sometime next year, I will be uh, looking to start uni. Okay. All right. And any particular direction you've established yet with that? Within science. Okay. A few different things I might try. Probably the top two contenders at the moment are climate science, so a bit of math and physics, and then weather modelling and sort of climate predictions. Okay. Also quite interested in sort of medical research, so looking for new vaccines and new treatment methods. So okay. I guess I'll start science and see where that takes me. Yeah, yeah okay. So so science, but, but definitely the sort of science that has sort of immediate implications for, for the way people live their lives and, and, and how people are, are affected, it seems. Yeah, that's certainly what I'd hope. 
Yeah, sure. Hey, Oscar, you, your dad's, you know, mentioned his faith and, and that him and your mum came to India in the first place, sort of motivated by their faith. Do you, do you guys like worship as a family at uh, like a local church there in the, in the slum or, or, or nearby? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's certainly been an interesting sort of faith and Christian experience growing up. So certainly far, far fewer Christians around than in Australia. Well, that's so right. It's, it, it's Hindu-dominated, is it, the community where you're living, or, or Muslim, mm-hmm. or a bit of both? Yeah, so this one's Muslim-dominated, but mm-hmm. sort of the wider city and state and country are certainly <laughs> Hindu-dominated. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we don't have all that many Indian Christian people around here. There mm-hmm. are certainly some. So there's been a significant emphasis on sort of like just doing things as a family together, reading the Bible and talking about that, sort of having family discussions about sort of faith issues, so be it like, should we give money to this person or where should we live and how simply should we live and all of that is kind of faith related. Yeah. So a significant emphasis on like within the family faith and Christianity. Um, but there certainly are other people, usually foreigners, but some Indians too, who we sort of get together with from time to time. Mm, okay, so it's sort of a, a small house group sort of arrangement when when it comes to worship, rather than a mm, like a big yeah. sort of yeah church building somewhere. That, that's fascinating. Yeah. I, I guess you know at, at seventeen it is an age when when a lot of people go through a, a bit of a searching stage when it comes to their faith, and you know they're looking at a, a situation where perhaps they're going to start making their own decisions about a lot of things, including their faith. Do you do you see that sort of questioning phase um, coming up for you, or do you see yourself sort of still Sticking with with the way your parents raised you, what, any, any idea there? Yeah, a uh, bit of a thorny question. I guess a bit hard to say in advance. Absolutely, yeah. Largely, I'd say I'm quite quite similar to mum and dad in lots mm. of ways, and sort of my faith and my sociology or political views and uh, what I'd like to do with life. I guess certainly there's some differences. So I'm yeah certainly keen to explore my faith more. I'll probably look to get baptised next year, maybe, when we're back in Australia or here. So, yeah, certainly faith is important for me, and I, I guess I'm still exploring what that means for me as an individual rather than just as part of our family. Yeah, sure. No, I, th- I think that's really important. Now, uh, Mark, Oscar mentioned climate science as an area of interest, and, and I imagine that that might have been influenced by, by you because you, your article in, in this month's Signs of the Times makes a, a really interesting point that, that while you went to India in the first place, you know, motivated by the, the aim of poverty reduction and those sort of, you know, e- economic and legal issues that maybe you would have linked with your, your law degree, you actually started to become quite concerned about e- ecology, which might might seem to be a bit of a strange sort of sideways jump to make. Can you can you talk us through that just as as we finish off in these last few minutes? Yeah, sure. So it, it's interesting that you know, over the last well maybe ten years, starting ten years ago, our source of international news was a newspaper called the Guardian Weekly. Mm-hmm. Um, that was about the only kind of window to the outside world that we had. And as we were reading the Guardian Weekly uh, every week, we think seeing uh, a higher frequency of articles about climate change and, and people saying. This is a very, very serious issue, and this has the potential to undermine a lot of the development work that's gone on for the you know, last 50 years. Mm. You know, people losing their homes, you know, increasing levels of natural disasters, uh, all, all this kind of stuff. So we thought, wow, that's, that's, that's very serious. So as a person of faith, you know, we, we believe that God has made a wonderful world for us to live in. 
but he's given us the responsibility to care for that world mm. for, uh, for the poor and for future generations. So when we went back to Australia in 2014 for a break, we thought, oh, you know, Australians are emitting huge amounts of carbon. The science is very clear. Of course, we'll find Australians desperately trying to reduce their carbon footprint. Mm. But in fact, we found the opposite. We found that Australians, you know, really didn't care terribly much. They were more interested in, you know, their mortgage repayments or their favourite footy team than they were about, um, you know, about the climate. Wow, yeah. And, and I think, as you point out in your article, while the, uh, the wealthy countries of the world are, are the ones producing uh, most of the greenhouse gases, it's often uh, people living in the, the poorer countries that, that cop it the worst. I mean, I'm thinking of neighbouring Bangladesh to you, where just about every year they have, you know, catastrophic flooding. Exactly. That, that, that's exactly right. And so it's, a, it's a very much an issue of justice. The people who have caused the problem, that is us people in the West, driving cars, flying, using lots of electricity, etc., etc. We have emitted the majority of the greenhouse gases. The people in the developing world are suffering the brunt of it, exactly as you say, like people in Bangladesh or in Indonesia. As sea levels rise, hmm. uh, you know, it's predicted by the end of this century, we're, we're looking at maybe up to a metre of sea level rise. And if you've got a metre of sea level rise, they're talking about 150 million people displaced. Wow. Now that, that's the, a bigger displacement of, of humanity that, uh, that has happened in history. Yeah. It's absolutely enormous. And most of those people will be, will be the poor. So it's an enormous issue of justice that we, we need to get our house in order to, to care for the poor. Mm, wow. And, and look, you've um, recently re- released a book called Low Carbon and Loving It, where, where you, I imagine you, you tell your story. Do you, are these the sort of issues you're, you're exploring in that book? Exactly, exactly. Yes. Yeah. So when, when we were in Australia and we were confronted by this issue and, you know, I was talking to politicians and did a bit of education work in schools and so forth. But I thought the best response I can make at the moment is to write, you know, write, write a book about this. So Older, my older son, Tom, who's now 22, and I co-authored this book. And whilst it's largely about, about climate change, mm. we weave in our story, our story from India, you know, living in slums and so forth, to make it an interesting read. So I think, yeah. you know, even if you weren't interested in climate science, it, it's kind of an interesting read to read about this crazy Australian family that, you know, lived in a slum for years. But yes, in, in that, what we do is we compare the lifestyle of a typical Australian that we call Bruce, <laughs> Bruce uh, and we look at yeah. Bruce's carbon footprint. Uh, <laughs> we find out that it's 23 tonnes uh, CO2 equivalent a year. And then we compare that with our real friend in, in a Delhi slum, a woman called Roxana. Mm. And, um, you know, we break down the carbon footprints for both Roxana and Bruce. We look at their travel and their electricity consumption, their diet and so forth. And we find that while Bruce is 23 tonnes a year, uh, Roxana's is 2.3 tonnes a year. Oh, wow. Exactly 10%. Wow. So we say, you know, that, that's a huge challenge for us. And then we give a series of suggestions about how we as ordinary Australians can reduce our carbon footprint. And, and it's absolutely doable. You know, it's, it's really doable. So that's the argument in the book. But we think it's a pretty interesting read too. Mm, wow. Okay. So, yeah, if, if you're listening to this interview and you're thinking, wow, yeah, that sounds interesting, uh, you probably need to check out the Mark and, and Tom Delaney's book, which is it's called Low Carbon and Loving It. You could just Google that. Or you could check out their blog, which is at lowcarbonandlovingit.wordpress.com. Dot com that web address That's again yep. yep low carbon and loving it dot wordpress dot com 
Hey, thanks so much uh, for your time, uh, Mark and Oscar. We really appreciate you uh, starting off off your morning with a, a, a chat with us. And yeah, thanks for, for giving us a bit of an insight into into your lives. It's uh, certainly you know a, a bit of a, a challenging thing for a lot of us, you know, living in places like Australia. But um, something to think about, and uh, I, I actually find it quite inspirational. So yeah, so thanks so much for for sharing your story with us. Thanks, Kent. Uh, appreciate that. Um, I've enjoyed the chat too. Yeah, yeah oh, thanks. Nice yeah. talking to you. And, and all the best with, with your exams, Oscar. Today's episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Science of the Times magazine. A subscription is just $26 for 11 issues a year. To find out more, visit scienceofthetimes.org.au. Signs of the Times has been published in Australia since 1886 and is proudly produced by Adventist Media. This is an Adventist Media podcast.